Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, and I welcome you to our 25th year on the air providing relationship and mental health conversations and information. I anticipate that today's guest will join the many more before her who have appeared on Mind Talk in providing you heartfelt and thoughtful options and experiences to consider. Today, I would like to welcome Carrie Allen to Mind Talk. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? I'm doing well, Carrie. Before we get to your history, um, tell us a bit about who you are today. Sure. I am an associate licensed counselor in the state of Alabama. Um, primarily what I do right now is I provide therapy, uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, or TFCBT for short, to children who have been victim of violence. So you got to tell us what that means. What does TFCBT mean? So it's trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral theory, um, Basically, we look at behaviors of those who have symptoms of PTSD, and we work to reduce those symptoms by addressing behaviors and thought processes and processing the trauma itself. You know, as much as I think we know today more than we ever have in the past that children, in fact, do experience trauma, I think there's still some sense that that can't really be true. Children really can't experience trauma. Give us a sense of what kinds of traumas you have worked with that children have experienced and perhaps some of what those behaviors or symptoms may look like. So I assess for 22 different types of trauma when I meet with my kiddos. Um, it can span from traumatic separation, from being removed from their family. Um, it can go to witnessing domestic violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, so there, it's, it can be really in-depth, and I myself can work with kids as young as three years old. But research out there shows that it is possible that it can happen as early as being in the womb. So for sure, it can and it does happen um, so pretty you, regularly. You know, uh, when you say that it can happen in the womb, I know there are people who are saying, well, that's not possible. Because, you know, a lot of times people say it happened when my child was two or four or five, and how could they possibly remember it, 12 or 15? But when you say that trauma can be experienced in the womb, I mean, that's a pretty astounding comment to make yeah um but you got to think of like things like is if the mother is doing substance abuse while um pregnant um if she's experiencing domestic violence um the stuff that women eat can directly affect the baby so why couldn't physical or emotional or substance trauma do the same um so mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense And, and, again, we don't really think about that. So, so if a child is born having had a traumatic experience, is there hope for that child? Absolutely. Um, I don't believe that there's not hope for any children or teen or an adult 
I think they just need to be connected with a support system and with services that can really help with their specific set of needs. So how can a, a parent tell or a teacher, how can an adult tell if a child may have experienced trauma? So there's some behaviors that I advise to look out for. Um, if there's a radical change or shift in behaviors, maybe before they were carefree and outgoing and suddenly they're isolating themselves or withdrawing pretty hard. Um, obviously, with physical trauma, you're looking for bruises, um, like physical marks on them. Um, but if they're acting out, like really acting out, like um, being really aggressive, um, being really physical, if they're fidgeting a lot, if they're flinching when you try to hurt them, or not hurt them, I mean, but, you know, touch them, um, if, if they're um, really just not wanting to speak about some really difficult subjects that may come up, that's a red flag. Um, so there's a lot of things that I look out for. It's um, how they're behaving with family, um, how they're behaving at school. Bad grades when there used to be a good grade student is usually a red flag. Having a hard time concentrating um, is something I pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like any kind of change, it may have absolutely nothing to do with trauma, but then again, it might. And it's worthwhile for a parent to really investigate. Yeah, because, I mean... When we talk about trauma, you, you know, um, I know a lot of us, myself included, we might go to like the extremes, like sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, someone's hurting someone. But trauma can also be like a death of a loved one or someone moved away that was a very supportive attachment to them. Um, a car accident can be traumatic. So post-traumatic stress syndrome after something really stressful or upsetting or traumatic happens, we have a lot of behaviors that cause also a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. So um, it's really just taking note about some changes that you might see in your kiddo and then start asking questions. So being curious is actually a good thing. And Absolutely. A, a lot of parents don't want to ask their children questions, but it's very reasonable to uh, really be curious about any changes you see in, in a child's behavior. Absolutely. And actually with like child disclosure of any type of violence or um, abuse that happened, a lot of the times why kids say that they didn't disclose ahead of time is because they weren't asked. And so being comfortable and asking questions and trying to figure out what's going on can give that child that outlet that they need to say something. You know, so many parents say, particularly if the child's a little bit older, well, they want to give him or her their space or, or they, they don't want to pry. It, it's it's not useful to the parent and it's not useful to the child. Part of your job as a parent is to quote unquote pry. Yes, um, because there are so many dangers out there and part of being the protector is making sure that we are supervising but also educating. Uh, online cyberbullying, for instance, is 
um, pretty substantial with a lot of our younger kids and teenagers or adolescents and teens, I should say. Um, sexting is a thing. Um, so there's a lot of things that come into play in regards to the dangers of social media and technology that if there is a lack of supervision, it's really like the, the reality of danger towards that child or teen or adolescent increases significantly. So if a child is being cyber bullied, uh, a parent certainly, uh, perhaps it was the old days, but maybe even now, a parent will say, don't pay attention to it, don't let them bother you, just ignore them. Does that work? Absolutely not. And my question to caregivers and parents is if someone is bullying you and harassing you at work, is that something that you can ignore? Um, this is something that can happen on a regular basis. And it's not, it could be a situation where it's just not one person, but many persons. And then with cyber or online, you're looking at the hidden mask of being anonymous. And so, um, that's where, you know, paying attention and really taking in their feelings and giving them the opportunity to speak their feelings and hear their feelings when they're voicing it is so important. So, again, the idea of telling them just to ignore it, it'll fade, it'll go away, that's not the best plan at all. At all. Like, it's not going to work. That is a recipe for more problematic uh, behaviors and symptoms like increased depression symptoms. Um, it could go into the realm of self-harming. It could go into the realm of suicidal thoughts or suicidal attempts. Um, it is very important to take these matters seriously. Carrie, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you more about your own history. You've sure. You've said that you've had your own experience with childhood trauma, so we're going to want to hear a bit about that when we return. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to My okay. Talk. I am having a conversation with Carrie Allen, who is an associate licensed counselor in the state of Alabama. Do not go away. We will be right back. Before the break, I indicated that we would talk a little bit uh, about your own childhood experiences. Uh, I know <laughs> I am quoting you when you have when you say, "I have an arm's length history of trauma from my childhood and in my young adult age, and these events drove me to who I am and the work that I do." Tell us a little bit about your experiences as a child. Um, so, uh, I had a mother who is now diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, I had a father, a biological father who had passed away. Um, I had witnessed domestic violence within the home. 
I've also been a victim of sexual abuse. Um, so that's what I mean by like an arm's length. <laughs> um, it sounds like an arm and uh, several fingers. When you say that your mom <laughs> was diagnosed with schizophrenia, for those who don't know what that actually looks like, what does that look like and how did it impact you as a little one? Well, so I grew up with a mother who legitly thought that she was talking like one-on-one -on -one, having a conversation just like how me and you are with God. And not only with God, she spoke to angels, she spoke to demons, she spoke to Jesus. Um, she had a grandiose ideology, which means that she believes that she's this really important person. And for her, that meant um, she was a high-standing person in God's army, and the devil really wanted to take her out. Um, so I grew up with a mom who saw demons, spoke to demons, spoke to spirits. There was the physical realm, and then there was the spiritual realm. Um, and honestly, like, for a lot of my childhood, I thought that there was something wrong with me because when I prayed, I didn't hear a voice back. Um, and it wasn't until one of my late childhood friends who spent the night who she was like, no, that's not actually people. That's, that's not normal. I want you to know that that's not normal. Um, Before that, did you know it wasn't normal? I did not. Okay. Not because that's what I grew up with. Yeah. Um, from early memories, mom talked to angels and she talked to, I mean, she when my dad passed away, she spoke to me about seeing dad transition into heaven and being accepted by angels and having judgment. Um, so she had visions. She had what I know now as she was seeing things and she was hearing things, which is delusions and hallucinations. Um, and so it gradually increased and it got to the point that she couldn't live a normal life because, like, she was full in her symptoms 24-7. Um, she isolated herself. Uh, before she got treatment, she was um, confined into her bedroom, a self-imposed confinement for six months. Oh no family heard from her. Um, we all were, like, trying to figure out what was going on. No one could make contact. And then um, I got a call from her early one morning um, describing to me that she was terrified because she was believing that the angels and the demons were going to sell her into sex slavery and that she was walking the streets for several days. Um, and that's where my trauma uh, training kind of kicked in, and I was asking her, like, where are you at? Um, where are you staying? Uh, <laughs> where can I find you? Stuff like that. So who took care of you when your mom was in such a state? So when she was in that state, I was an adult. I lived with my mom and grew up with her, and I, I eventually left the nest when I became adult age. But a lot of what happened um, in regards to when she got really bad, um, like the family knew, they just kind of hid it underneath the rug, and me and my sister just coped with it the best we could, to be honest. Did you ever tell anybody at school? Yes, but I don't think, like, pe that's going back to that whole childhood thing. People didn't ask me the right questions. Mm. And so, like, I said things like, Mom talked to God and Mom talked to Jesus, and 
things like that, there was instances where she was convinced that the neighbors were going to break into the house and kill me and my mother and do these horrific things. So she, like, boarded up the windows and boarded up the basement and set booby traps in the basement. Um, And I told a school counselor about, like, these threats that were going to happen to me and my mom, and she just kind of blinked and looked at me and said, well, did you call 911? And I said, well, no. (laughs) And nothing ever happened from that. Um, So even when you reported something, it sounds like the school wasn't able to understand the reality of what you were reporting. Yeah, they like it, I didn't actually ever sit down with anyone and talk about like what happened. I remember in high school I had a psychology teacher that was like the beginning of like the steps to become who I am now. We had a lesson on schizophrenia and it like really drove home in a big way. And I was disassociating too in high school, which meant like I just got lost in the world of writing and my stories and reading. And that was the way that I coped with a lot of the stress from having a parent with schizophrenia. Um, And so even that teacher, when I was like, I have these symptoms, um, really all she did was she kind of took me aside and said, you know, there's people that you can talk to if this gets really out of hand. But the reality is like, I couldn't, talk to people because my mom was like you can't talk to people or you're going to get in trouble and I was afraid well and and the other reality is that by the time you're telling somebody that you're having these thoughts and feelings in a lot of ways it's already out of hand yes it really was um there is without a doubt many times that mom needed help and we needed the help um I just didn't know how to go about it. I didn't know what this was. Um, It wasn't until college when I got into my undergraduate and then later my graduate um, classes where I really honed in on schizophrenia and bipolar. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. (laughs) There is no question. There's the A, the B, the C, and the D. Like, let's just write the check and call it a day because literally this is it it was it was all there Mm -hmm. in front of you even even that realization i would think would have been a bit traumatizing because you had no name to put to the behavior up until then and quite frankly schizophrenia is a scary word for people who don't understand it it was scary but it was more of a relief too um because it was like i'm not crazy (laughs) like my experience legit sucks and like a lot of the times what would happen is i would minimize things Mm -hmm. or um say you know people have it worse than me or something like that and my mom is not that crazy um like she still took care of us she did wonderful job with um you know providing empathy and giving us like our emotion emotional support but there was definitely like fear and control elements and religious aspects that were very heavy. And so even though it it was scary, it was like, one, I'm not crazy. And two, there is a way for my mom to get help. Now, how do I go about doing that? You know, one one of the things that you just said um, was that 
schizophrenia notwithstanding, your mom was still able to parent you and your sister. Yes. And, and I think that when people hear mental illness, particularly a psychotic illness, the assumption yeah. is that that patient or that person is no good for anybody at this point. But that's not really true. They're still alive and awake and have thoughts and yeah. experiences. My mom was very high-functioning, especially early in my childhood and into my earlier teens. Um, she could work. She just didn't because um, she got survival benefits from my dad who retired out. Um so she was, she had the financial means of being a stay-at-home mom, and that was wonderful. Um, she was very engaged. She t she attended every school uh, conference, and she went to all my choir concerts. She was invested for real. Um, so she was high functioning. It's just she went literally like 53, 55 years without a diagnosis or treatment. It eventually caught up with her and just got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point that, like, you can't ignore this anymore. This is like a life and death situation. How would you say, I mean, you, you've said that part of your history has created who you are today and certainly guides mm -hmm. the work that you do. Who would you say you are today? Today, I am a survivor. I am a very persevering person, a very strong person. Um, I am someone who I feel like I purposely put myself into um, the dark, hard parts that anyone with, um, without my experience, or maybe they do, I don't know, but like, the majority of people who hear what I do for my job run in the opposite direction and I'm running forward. I want to be that person that uses a lot of my dark and hurtful experience to help others heal so they know that these experiences doesn't have to define them, but they can soar and thrive. And that, I think, is such a powerful message uh, to to share with our listeners because there are so many times when people hear whether it's a diagnosis they've received themselves or a diagnosis mm -hmm. that they've uh, learned about a loved one, the assumption is that it, it's all over now. It's just my life is now predictable and it's all over and it's done and I'm done. And And what you're saying is that that is not at all that does not need to be the case at all. Does not. It took a long time for my mom to get the help she needs. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had the recognition that I needed help myself too. Um, so the benefits on this side of where I'm at in life is my mom was able to get treatment. She receives treatment now. No, she's not 100% like where I would like her to be, but I have conversations with her where before it would be six months to three years without hearing from her at all. She is not isolating. She's doing things. She's shopping. She's going to movies. She's living life. And me as a trauma survivor or, a, you know, a, a, someone who has that history of violence, um, I too have 
you know, that experience and that share. And it does not have to stop just because you have been labeled with something. That's just one part of enormous rest of the parts of who you are. It's, it's really one element and that element doesn't have to break you. That's so true. I, you know, the way that you put it is so lovely and, and so elegant because it is very true that people so often either define themselves or others define them based on a label. And the label is really just a part, assuming it's an accurate label, it's just a part of yeah. who they are. So a lot of times people are labeled right. inaccurately. Right. For those and please continue. Like, I'm sorry. No, please continue. Um, well, so often, often what I tell like my clients and even my mother. Um, so she often is worried about people like, like she's open about schizophrenia, but then she's hesitant about it. And I just remind her, you know, people don't go around saying, Hey, I have diabetes or Hey, like, Two years ago, I broke my arm. It's really none of anyone's business. If you feel like you can trust the person and you want to share that, by all means. And that's the same thing with anything else. Trauma, um, your relationship history. Um, it, it isn't something that you have to broadcast because really, like, um, if you're functioning well enough, most of the time, people might not even realize that you have that diagnosis. That's very true. For those who are listening today, we've got just a few moments left. If they have a relationship with a loved one who has been diagnosed with a significant mental illness, wh how would you guide them? What would you like for them to think about as they travel the journey? Well, one, I would make sure to advise them to make sure that they're taking care of themselves because self-care is so important. Sometimes we have to put up boundaries to safeguard ourselves, recognizing that if they're not in treatment and they're not a healthy person, it might be toxic to try to be present in that um, extreme illness. On the other side, uh, a lot of mental illness, like sch specifically schizophrenia, I'm just going to specifically talk about schizophrenia, it has a high relapse rate. And so making sure that they're supported and um, they, too, have a good support system and um, are receiving the services are really important. So it's a balance. It's a balance of looking out for your loved ones and being there and supporting them as best as you can, but also making sure that you're taking care of yourself because, I mean, what do you have if you don't have your own mental and physical health? And you know, I the, can't stress that enough. The, the reality is there are so many people, and maybe this happens more with women than men. I, I, I'm not going to say that. It just throw it out there as a possibility. Have the notion that self-care is really selfish and that you always have to put other people first. So to them, I think I know what you're going to say, but why don't you say it anyway? So, I mean, that has been a personal battle of mine for so long also. Um, Self-care, selfish, 
how dare I be selfish? I can't be selfish because I'm a very empathic person. I'm a caregiver. And so being someone who cares for others, I have to make sure I'm available to care for others. But the reality is, is I am a glass of water. And if everyone is taking from my water and I have nothing left to give, how can I help people if I'm not helping myself? And so it is completely acceptable, if not expected, especially with me and my job as a therapist, I have to take care of myself or it's an ethical dilemma. So um, you have to take care of yourself or else, I mean, like I said, how can you take care of other people? You can't. Carrie, I, we are just about out of time, but I can't say thank you enough for your sharing not only your personal story, but certainly your clinical expertise and really helping the listeners to think about helping themselves, quite frankly. Thank you so much, Carrie, for all you have brought to today's conversation. Thank you. you. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back to talk about some more trauma stuff. Oh, yeah, anytime. (laughs) Please, Pamela, just give me a call. (laughs) That's terrific because, unfortunately, there is so much to talk about and so much trauma uh, that we experience. There is. Absolutely. So thank you. There is. Thank you again mm-hmm. for today's conversation, and we will be back in touch. All right. Looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. And, folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you four days a week. It is an educational public service. Mind Talk is available to you online 24-7 by going to several places, including mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D. T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. If you'd like to send an email to me, that's Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember, always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable, you take care.